This episode of Air It is brought to you by I Saw Nothing for Days, a donation-based project that I'm currently working on from home, in which I openly process my emotions and confront my viewers with the anxieties that I feel connected to the pandemic. But through these visual poems, I also encourage and urge my viewers to acknowledge their own anxieties and the hard questions connected to times of crisis. You can find more details about this project on my Instagram at artist underscore NB. And in the bio, there's a link that'll take you to the description and how to get involved and where you can donate. Hello and welcome to Arid Podcast. Arid is a raw, unscripted podcast offering conversations between an artist and a philosopher. In this podcast, you can expect us to uproot, unpick and redefine contemporary modes of thinking within the South African context. In each episode, we will do so by making eclectic use of various cultural text and theoretical disciplines. I'm Nicolene Berger and I'm Jana Vosloer. And this is Eret. Hello, Jana. Hi, Nicolene. Are you ready for a chat? I'm ready, yes. Okay. So the question for today is, how can the concepts of design, space and power help us to rethink the South African education system during a global pandemic? And today we have our first ever arid guest with us named Olivia Bevan. And I'm going to ask her to just introduce herself and um, elaborate a little bit more on her take on this question. Okay. Um, hi, Jana, Nicoline. Thank you so much for having me as your first guest on Eret. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting um, question for me, especially as a teacher. So I'm a teacher. I, um, I teach fine art. And just going back to school this week um, and then having to think about this question has been very interesting for me. And something that really popped up for me when, I'm, when I was thinking about it was the fact that spaces can control and restrict um, certain ways of learning, but learning is not something that is restricted to a space. Mm. So learning takes place outside of spaces, but spaces do have the ability to restrict individuality and creativity. Um, and that's something really key to me as an art teacher. So yeah, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a printmaker, I'm a painter, I'm an artist as well as a teacher. And very excited to be chatting with you today. That's such a lovely introduction to this question and also in the airing part um, because it relates nicely to a video that the two of us watched together. So Olivia is also my partner in Create Space, which is this project that we speak about in the first episode about reconnecting um, people to their creativity and also to see how creativity can actually help learning. 
um, the process of learning. So for Create Space Research, Olive and I watched this design for play documentary, which is part of the abstract series. And in that episode, the artist Cass Holman investigates how design can promote playful learning. And then we found Ingrid Vital Lee's TED Talk, um, Where Joy Hides and How to Find It. And it was really interesting because both of these videos helped us to think through question, the question of today's episode, but they also both consider the concept that artist Arakavaka and um, poet Madeleine Gins speak about, which is the architecture or design against death. So they look at how the design of spaces can promote creativity, play, joy, and comfort, and essentially how a space or architecture can promote living. So a, an image from this one, from the one documentary, the design for play, one that really stuck with me and made me think like this is a very, very important topic was the, the artist Cass, she said that the model that we have today for students sitting in lines and desks the way they do were designed during the, the time when they were training factory workers. And just this image, and she, they show it in the documentary of students sitting that are supposed to be trained into this factory working mentality, and then students of today sitting exactly in the same kind of spaces. I can't unsee it and I can't not think about how we how important it is that we need to start rethinking the spaces that we actually educate in. And when I um, I also briefly watched this documentary this this afternoon and um, the question when I was thinking about this question there was one philosopher that like that like it's like a knee-jerk reaction like they train you in philosophy if you think power space the next thing that should come in your mind is Foucault. Like, <laughs> he is the philosopher to help us think about this problem. So Foucault is a French philosopher that talks about this relationship between power and knowledge and how they are used as a form of social contract um, and in specifically reflecting on discipline and punishment. So I will elaborate a bit more on him later, but we will be using or seeing how even our cultural texts will reflect some of the key concepts that you find in Foucault's thinking. And I just want to emphasize that I'm no expert on Foucault and he, he's a thinker that has a very broad scope and reach. So these are just kind of the intuitive ideas about Foucault that came to my mind when I was thinking about our question. So later in the episode, we will unpack some counterexamples to like spaces of very strict discipline where students are um, surveyed and those kind of um, examples that they speak about in the TED talk and in that documentary are even stranger than you guys will be able to imagine. Like it's, it's really, really pushing the edges of architecture and design and it's quite exciting, but still very strange. We can't actually imagine a society with these counterexamples to spaces that enforce discipline and, and really use power in the wrong way. cultural text we are going to be to use as a tool to unpack the idea of spaces and systems and that they might hold different kinds of power depending on how they are designed is the concept of the panopticon and then we're going to use Rourke's Drift Art and Craft Center and we're going to use printmaking as a process-based medium. 
So I will start by just introducing the text or the idea of the Panopticon because it's a digital and visual example, but it's as much a symbolic and conceptual example. So I mentioned that Foucault talks about power and he also talks about the Panopticon, but to explain how he talks about it, I first have to reverse a little bit to a philosopher called Jeremy Bentham. And he was actually also the father of a school called utilitarianism for your philosophy one-on-one, one-on-one today. But um, Jeremy Bentham designed this hypothetical prison called the Panopticon. And uh, we will link some images for you, but it's, a it's basically the central watchtower in the middle of the prison that was built so that they can see the prison um, from the tower, but so they can see into each cell room, but the Panopticon or the central control tower itself is hidden with like shutters around it. So basically they can surveil the prisoners, but the prisoners are not sure whether they are being watched. And what it comes down to is this idea that they will enforce power by just depending on the fact that the prisoners will be scared enough or too scared for the possibility of being watched. And Bentham didn't only think of this, Panopticon is like an architectural model for prisons, but he also thought that it could work for schools or mental hospitals. And so Foucault really tried to criticize this later on, and he used the Panopticon, or what he calls Panopticism, as an example to understand how power operates. So um, Foucault even realized that perhaps if we start thinking about schools, and prisons in this way, we will start thinking about countries in this way as well. And that's very interesting if you think about modern day, like surveillance with our more recent technology. But yeah, so I will be thinking about this Panopticon or in today's episode, not just as this prison example, but as also a synonym for the current structure of the educational system. Um, and there's some great examples where you can make this connection that we will unpack and delve into a little bit later. But one is like just the way in which um, students are graded anonymously and the relationship between teachers and students and all these things. So maybe um, as a teacher here with us today, Bolivia can just reflect a little bit on this whole idea of preparing for students to return now and maybe your concerns at the moment. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, especially considering this time um, where everyone is scared of becoming infected or becoming sick or transmitting and transferring um, COVID-19 to loved ones and back home from the school space. And, and just jumping off um, what you were saying on the idea of discipline, something that I, in normal schools, right, everything that you're saying about this panopticon kind of really relates to how every movement from when the, the kids come into school is, is monitored in some way or another. There are cameras everywhere. They have to carry with them a little bookie where you have to have signed if they can go to the bathroom. And I mean, obviously there are logistical factors at play here, but again, this idea of being constantly surveyed and constantly looked at, and there's a fear there. There's a fear that underlies that entire idea of being constantly watched. And for me, something I learned, I think it was maybe one of the only valuable things I learned during my postgrad um, year of education after having studied art was that discipline actually comes from the word disciple. 
that word, right? So the definition of discipline comes from the word disciple, which means to follow. And if you think about that definition, it relates not at all. It doesn't relate at all to, to this kind of surveillance that you're speaking about. Um, and, and it's very sad for me now returning to school, seeing all these very strict, very militarized um, kind of systems being put in place for fear of transmitting this disease. So whether going back to school is even a wise choice, because now they're going back to a school that's even more surveyed, it's even more militarized. I mean, there is the idea of taking them on exercise breaks, but then I, as the teacher, have to lead them single file on a mapped out route and then return to school within a specific time because there cannot be too many kids out and about and interacting. Um, and so it's very strange to me and it's very sad to me actually because having to go back to school in this space, and then it doesn't become a school for me. It doesn't become what I think learning should be. And, and I really didn't think that school as it was, was a good learning space because of this discipline. And now there's more. And so <laughs> it's very nerve wracking. And it's kind of scary to think that if these systems are here and then they stay, what is school going to be like? And, and especially because there's the very real fear of, of um, transmitting the disease and, and, you know, kind of hygiene and sanitizing and all of that. And, and I, fully agree with the measures put in place from that perspective but if they stay with us because I mean COVID-19 isn't going anywhere anytime soon is online learning or, or alternative spaces not better to be considered when we return to school so so that's kind of my take. Johan I think what you said about not agreeing with systems and methods in place even before COVID-19 we can link this design of the, the panopticon to the way that teachers tend to sit on the stage when there's an assembly and the students are kind of looking at the teachers, but that space is inaccessible. You know, the, the, it's not, you can still look at each other. It's not like in the extreme example where the students can't even see the teachers, but there's, it's not accessible. They're, they're separate from the students. And that really doesn't allow in that space of assembly where the school community is supposed to come together for a student to stand up and raise their hand and like have an opinion in that space. And also the way that teachers tend to stand in front of the classroom and look towards the classroom, you know, that kind of looking from the one side to the other side also sets up this power dynamic which we already had. So now if we're just using that model to, to apply it in these extreme examples, obviously extreme examples of, of that model is going to come to the foreground, like you're mentioning, which is worrying if you think of potential and creativity and playfulness, which are all things that promote learning. And the scary thing is, and I think Twitter helps me to understand that, is it's a very subtle type of power that's being exerted in this type of discipline scenario. And what Foucault says is that it, it, it is power that looks kind, but it isn't. So what Nicoline said about this idea also of the teacher standing in front of the class and the students sitting, Foucault was also very critical of that idea of a teacher. And I heard an interview with him about school. He, he didn't like school, like school was not his vibe. And um, he, he spoke in French, but it was translated. And he was talking about how you are really enticing a sense of guilt by in the whole education system where you tell people, you sit and listen, and I'm gonna tell you what you don't know. And then um, once I taught you, I will check also whether you know what I have taught you. Um, so there's that sense of verification. And then if you do not know it, I can also punish you. Um, and then that's where we have to start asking, where does the 
the power lie if it's not in the hands of the learner, if it's, if it's made to see that besides this teacher, the student has no other way of engaging in learning. And that's like you said, Olivia, in the beginning, that's not what knowledge is, that's not what learning is. Yeah, so I think, Jana, when you break it down like that, it becomes really interesting. I think if you can maybe just say like that structure again of, um, I'm gonna tell you what you don't know, and then I'm gonna check if you, don't, if, you, if you know it or not, and then I'm gonna punish you if you don't know it. And if you think about the world and how the world functions outside, those kind of systems also ignore the nuances, which have always kind of been a problem for me in the way that we're learning is it's, it's simplified and categorized. And I think in that way also distorts the way that learning actually takes place in reality. Um, but maybe Liv, now you can compare for us the design of the virtual classroom because you had quite a few weeks where you had to navigate the virtual <laughs> space and teach on Zoom and like chat to students on WhatsApp and things like that. So there's a strange kind of merging of where's the private and the, and the, and the public, like we said in the previous um, um, episode. So what is that setup and how did the two compare? I think that what was really interesting for me about um, teaching online was that I realized and, and art, being an art teacher, you already kind of are knocking on this door a little bit, is that there is no, exactly what Jana was just saying, there's no one size fits all solution to problems right it's it's individuals and as an art teacher i have the opportunity already in the classroom to engage with individuals what is your art project about what is your concept okay let's see how we can bring it about visually and then there's a connection there but it's an individual one um, and then you leave them and then they problem solve and then they come back to you so it's a little bit more sharing it's a little bit more collaborative um, and i found that even through through just kind of uploading work and contacting kids and emailing kids um, and having an online um, painting workshop, these things, um, they allowed for those connections to start taking place. Mm. The connections that I was already experiencing in the art classroom, but that I'm sure they weren't experiencing in other subjects. Mm. So the idea of sharing what an individual problem is and saying, ma'am, can we meet on WhatsApp because it suits my data needs? Or ma'am, we can do Zoom because I, I have internet and, and then you can have a different kind of conversation. And so what's nice about the online is to a certain extent, obviously those without data and without any access, there, there's a real problem and a real need there. Um, but you can meet the kids in their context mm. and you can share with them um, in their context. And another thing that brings that about is the learners become responsible for their own learning and understanding. So now the space of the school is gone, but the learning is still taking place. And it only really takes place when you as a learner or as a student engage with the content and, and you decide how and when you want to do it, which almost makes it more accessible. Mm -hmm. So you're not forced at 10 o'clock in the morning to sit down and write an English essay. You can do it at 12 o'clock at night if that's mm -hmm. when your brain you know, is firing and you can write your essay. Mm -hmm. and, and I really think that the quality of work when you are allowed to engage with it from your own context, within your own time, within your own space, and then reach out to the teacher when you need help. And then all the teacher needs to do is hold that space mm. and, and be accessible um, to hold that space mm. as a way to reflect your own learning back towards you. Um, and there, there, there's no teacher standing in front of the classroom. There it's like sitting down like we are having a cup of tea and, and, and connecting one-on-one -on -one and connecting with real concerns and real issues and so that's kind of how i've found the online space to be and i've i found it 
rewarding in a lot of ways, frustrating in a lot of ways too, but that's also due to like some, it's new, um, you know, kind of Wi-Fi data issues. And I mean, obviously there are always those kids who, who don't want to learn and don't want to engage. And that responsibility is something that they can learn now and, and take further into the real world. I mean, they can sit in my classroom, they'll be there, but they won't be working. So, I mean, they may as well do it at home and be playing Xbox and learning something else about, you know, another kind of brain working thing yes. happening. Um, so, yeah, so that was just some really interesting things that came up for yeah. me. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting for me to hear also how you say about how that hierarchy was dismantled, like on the Zoom space. Like all of a sudden, it's, it's not the teacher standing in front, like you are now an equal block in the whole like Zoom block. Did you feel like it, ch it changed the way you engage with students because you are now just like one block amongst them? It definitely does because a lot of what, um, I mean, I was already tapping into that a little bit as an art teacher. So kind of, I also teach a little bit of life orientation and creative arts. So having a one-on-one a, a -on -one engagement or like a, a collective class engagement where you're all on the same level and everyone can kind of share or engage as they want, um, like on a WhatsApp group or on a Zoom call, it definitely gets rid of that anxiety of, of being watched, like we were speaking about, or that anxiety of, of being called out in class um, because the teacher's standing up and they can see down towards you. And so it's, it's a really, it's a completely new space. And, and I think that just thinking now, back on the few days that I've been at school, that they're trying to stuff an old system, a standardized system, like onto this new situation and and it's it's coming out as militant and it's coming out as more surveillance and it's coming out as more watching and more restrictions and and whereas online learning was giving us a lot more freedom to play um and yes there's the problem of accessibility and data issues and all of that but i think that that's something that can still be overcome and maybe that's where the focus of schooling now should be is is giving access to online to kids who can't mm. rather than trying to force this new system into an old system kind of space of the school yeah definitely and i think the things that i'm hearing you saying is that the old system didn't have really have responsibility built into its model that no. was kind of the the teacher's responsibility and, and role is to enforce a sense of discipline which will relate into students just doing the things without really thinking about why so so that's kind of inherent motivation that needs to be like built into our new system so that if some students don't come back to school or parents decide for them to continue with online learning there's an incentive model you yes. know it feeds itself and i mean I've, I've been thinking a lot about this because we need to ask ourselves where our current schools um come from so the designs are they based or rooted in a masculine colonized probably apartheid mindset and I mean in South Africa there's so many examples of schools that have just just those kind of ideals built into their physical structure and into their systems so as illustrated in the previous episode in times of crisis we really have um, this opportunity to reimagine because like you say there's this conversation anyway about how so in this how we have the opportunity to chuck out things that don't work anymore and like um, the designer in that design for play episode says learning happens so organically and the idea that in creative arts things can be more flexible but in biology it can't 
it actually doesn't make sense. It doesn't really map out that way. Like in that documentary, they illustrate that it is possible for you to weave in technology and mathematics and science and creativity. So to create this kind of holistic models of learning that really actually work the way that, that life works, you know, things don't happen as separately and as categorized as we have subjects at the moment. Yeah, and I think, like, thinking back about high school, like, subjects are so compartmentalized. Yeah. And I, t I told Nicoline earlier that I feel like I would have been better in maths if I had studied philosophy in school as well. Because there I learned that, like, firstly, most mathematicians were philosophers. So they, went, they were not doing just math on its own. They were thinking about political systems and world problems and analytical thinking. And that, that is what, uh, like, maths is like a, a problem of logic. So you're trying to use deductive reasoning and all those skills. And that's what I learned in first year BA, but, but couldn't learn in high school math. And that's why I kind of sucked in it. And maybe I would have sucked anyways, but I, it's a fun idea to imagine how it could have been different. It was playful. Um, yeah. And the thing is, that's also like, sorry to bring Foucault back into it again, but it's just this idea that, that he also said school should be a celebration. We should be happy to go there because he calls it a haven of curiosity. Yeah. So Foucault argues that actually, like he talks about knowledge and power a lot, and he talks how like knowledge is deeply related to pleasure. Mm. Um, and our school system forgets that. So he almost wants to eroticize knowledge. And so cool. he says that, he even said, that I don't know if it's I don't know the age of our listeners and if it's age appropriate but he said like if school was kind of imagined or knowledge was as exciting as like making love then he said people would show by the dozens yes. and he says like <laughs> the school system is restricting this they are restricting the idea that school is pleasurable by making it utterly like boring and I know not all schools like schools have changed a lot since when Foucault was writing when it was still even worse but he said he is really critical about this idea that now we have these like sad gray unerotic spaces um, and then what they do is to compensate for that they have secondary social rewards like competition so where we have now we have prize givings and now you have the prospect of earning lots of money one day so if you do your math biology science combo you are like packaged ready to go um so they use these type of things but what what happens and nicoline and olivia you both said this is the intrinsic value of knowledge gets lost because yes. it's not about that they are like monetizing and in that way we can also think about how it's a capitalist system that, that by design. No, so now I think it, it'll be productive to start talking a bit about these counterexamples that we saw in, um, in the TED talk and in that documentary, but also the South African example, which is Rourke's Drift um, Arts and Crafts Center, which Olivia is going to guide us through. She knows a lot about this because um, as she used it in her fourth year paper at university for art as well. So Lee talks in her TED talk about the new Sandy Hook Elementary School. So after the mass shooting that happened in 2012 there, um, the designers knew that they had to create a secure building. You know, we've been talking a lot about security now in this time and also like this kind of I think what we're leaning towards is, is, is considering the emotional security that also comes with spaces. And they did this by making the building very joyful. 
um, and they put a lot of curves and squiggle canopies and like the whole building bends toward the entrance so it's very welcoming and happy and we'll share some images with you but it's just amazing how much natural light is in this building and they say they did this on purpose because we are natural beings we are used to be outdoors actually like our revolutionary chain the time that we've been spending in houses and in buildings are actually very 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 short um in our whole history so if if you think about the importance of natural light and and spaces you know like a lot of high ceilings and spaces and these there's another example of schools that are being transformed by a nonprofit called public color and they um said that these schools that are brightly painted and ha also have these curvy lines that attendance approved in those schools and graffiti disappeared because graffiti is very much misunderstood hey like it is just a um, a way of trying to give expression in a space where you're not allowed to give expression. So by writing your name on your desk at school, you can say like, this is me. And what's funny is if you think that even most children write like their name was here, you know, Nicolene was here. And it's kind of this trying to force this. I, I have an identity in the space, even though I'm stripped of it through this like, like fix their names on their school bags. Yeah, and it's funny to think of it in this way now as it was actually just this craving that they had for expression. Exactly. So, so kids actually feel safer in these spaces, it seems. Yeah, just adding to that whole graffiti thing, I did a graffiti project with my grade nines. Just, I, it's, it's a struggle in grade nine. You have to take some kind of art and they really don't want to do it and they see it as a time-wasting lesson. So it becomes a little bit of crowd control for me. But I thought... Sure, it's a bit of a risk. Spray paint to the kids. And <laughs> and they loved it. Like it was I had the naughtiest boys in the class, like outside with me, spray paint. They were even just spray painting on paper. But they loved it because they could hold the spray paint can and they could hoy with, you know, they were allowed, they, they, they were allowed to. And and the yeah. fact that sometimes my kids will accidentally something will come off on the desk. And they're like, Mom, I'm so sorry. I need to clean your desk. Um some paint came through and I'm like We'll paint something on it like I don't mind <laughs> and the surprise that they can like actually write their name on the desk and, and then I get like a little mushroom or a little a rose or a little like oh. rainbow on the corner of my desk like they're very shy about it but it's there you know it's so like those moments for me are so heartwarming um just yeah. just a thought on that whole graffiti no, idea but it's so true and, and if we start thinking about color and about curvy spaces and about all of those things and how it actually invites the sense of expression it's yeah. more valuable to a lot of things that we will discuss but another thing that they've also found is that people that have offices that are more colorful are actually more alert they're more confident. I found that very interesting that that color can make people feel more confident and it's just friendlier. They felt like it was a friendlier space, but they also felt like they could be friendlier to each other and collaboration could happen more freely. So the way that we think about productivity, because a lot of what you said when we spoke about the kind of militarized going back to school is because of this control and because they still want the kids to get through their work and they, they obviously considering productivity to see like if we take them on a guided walk we know they're safe and we know they're going to be back in time because we're controlling them all the time we know that we're going to have to control them even in their breaks otherwise they're going to go ham in their breaks so now we're going to control them so that they can finish their work but but are we really thinking about productivity and i think what i remember from that abstract documentary is where um, 
the designer, she makes toys for children. And she talks a lot about how um, the problem that she has with toys that are made with a specific purpose of execution. So we often think about productivity in terms of you are productive when you were effective, mm. when you did what you were supposed to do in a specific time. Then you can say, I had a productive day today because I did everything on my to-do list or I finished my essay in time. Um, and how she starts to create these open-ended toys where you, you give it, you once again indulge the idea that learning is about curiosity. That if children and adults can see these different parts and you can, you can decide how you put them together. It's not like, I mean, Lego used to be like that. I feel like we, it was just a different level of Lego blocks and I have a little sister and now it's like every Lego is like, you build like, Pacific. Uh, I don't know, who, whatever's castle or this person's yeah. snow ranch, like you have to do that and then you are done and then it's finished. It's also interesting to think then about like the role of parents as teacher in this time because they were also struggling with homeschooling and in all these things in between. But it's like Foucault also reminds, he says that, that parents can give children a lot of anxiety towards knowledge when also they are displaying their, in their interest is in like displaying their children's knowledge. So like my child achieved this today in school and by showing that, you are actually creating so much anxiety for your child because then it's once again this idea of productivity where you have to achieve a certain thing. And it, it also, it, it's this merchant idea of, of knowledge. Once again, like we have to capitalize on you made something that can be sold, that can be translated into credits or something that will help you one day. Yes, or, or that you had to be compared to someone else and and mm -hmm. and beat them and and like it's in sport it's in the way we um do testing the way that you you compare marks and mm -hmm. and 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 your i had a conversation today actually um with one of my colleagues that your internal worth because of the way that people respond to how you achieve things right especially in school your internal sense of value and sense of worth becomes attached to things that are measurable like a percentage or like a trophy or like a hockey match where you beat the other team and 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 it's school teaches us that connection mm. it, it enforces that connection and there's no space for ambiguity. Mm. There's no space to play. Um, and I'll chat a little bit about it now when I speak about printmaking. Um, but there's no place for those unplanned moments yeah. where you started by drawing a flower, but you ended up drawing um, a car. Mm. Right? Just as a silly mm. example, where you started somewhere and an unplanned moment veered you off course in the process and you ended up somewhere else. Mm. Now, does that mean you weren't productive because you didn't achieve drawing the entire bouquet of flowers? You ended up drawing something else. Mm. But, but that unplanned kind of everyday little surprising moment of being creative and discovering something new is not valued. It's not valued in our systems. It's not valued in the way we teach. It's not valued in the way we test mm -hmm. because you have to do one plus two, one plus one equals two. And then that has to be tested. And then only once it's tested, have you done it yeah. and you've achieved it. And there's mm -hmm. no like, well, what if I do one plus three? And then maybe I think about how I have four jelly beans. Like there's no allowing for those random and, and unplanned and kind of creative playful moments mm -hmm. like that designer. Yeah. Um, 
in that in that abstract series how she allows those open-ended toys yeah and, and, she and calls them clothes ideas she says yes. if you are given a set of tools to build a car then that's a closed idea you're going to get a car but if you give a student tools to build whatever they're going to build whatever you know and it makes me think a lot about art and artists like it was a very big struggle for me to unlearn this idea that every single day needs to be quantified to the things that i've done and then i'm valued because creativity and innovation doesn't work like that you take a walk with your cup of coffee and because you want to take a break and you have the best idea so it's the in-between moments like you're talking about the the detour you're taking to your idea that is the importance and the spaces don't always allow for that detour to happen yeah and and those detours those those things that you veer off course those things are called mistakes Mm. and 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 mistakes are oh i need to tell this to myself but mistakes are so valuable make as many mistakes as you can and mess up as much as you can like and I have to remind myself of that because I've gone through a system where I was a really good child at school. I ticked all the boxes. I made the lists. I did the tests. I got the grades. And looking back now, I understand why, but there was no space to value those mistakes Mm. and our testing system and everything just doesn't allow for those mistakes, which are essentially moments of creativity Mm. to happen. Definitely. And Liv, now I want to ask you to tell us a bit, of a, a bit more about the printmaking that you were speaking of. How can we now start to imagine if the spaces open up and if the design starts reflecting this kind of transparency and creativity, how can different ways of learning be brought in? So maybe reflect a bit about printmaking as a process-based learning tool. Um, so when I had to think about, um, in fourth year, like what my research article was going to be about, um, I was already leaning towards art and art education and exploring that. And, and I'm a printmaker, which was my sort of medium of choice in my specialization field in fourth year and third year. Um, printmaking for me was very exciting. It was very daunting at first because there were a very specific set of processes and rules that were laid out for me. If you want to create an etching, this is the process you need to go through. You need to follow all of these steps and then you will get um, a beautiful etching. But I realized that printmaking was a lot less scary than that. And it was a lot more organic than that. Um, And it allowed for those moments to happen. Those moments I was just speaking about. It allowed for you to be presented with a process. Um, You do A plus B plus C and then you create your print. But if you make a mistake... A mistake right in, in as in you you do something different something alternative to the process a different result pops out so it allowed for you to kind of play a little bit with processes and problem solve and so i realized that through making mistakes and trying new things i could create different kinds of prints um, and so if i wanted to and, and often that would be the case i would try and make something and it would come out as something completely different and that's because there was a process in between mm-hmm. right you had to put it through the press it was reversed it was mirrored and and that was often a mistake that you would make and and it would come out looking completely opposite to what you wanted it to but that idea of removing yourself from the direct sort of product mm-hmm. or the direct artwork that you're wanting to make by a process of exploration and mistake making you could discover new things Um, and so that is how i started to approach printmaking Um, it's a slightly less traditional serious i suppose way of approaching printmaking it's quite because i mean printmaking as a is very sort of austere and serious and and that's how our lecturer presented it to us but i found this playfulness in it 
that um, really made me think about how if we approach that process-based and playful-based learning um, methods, if we took those and put them in a classroom um, and connected maybe several subjects together, say English and maths and science or maths and art and science and how you create a process connecting different concepts or different subjects or different phenomena in nature, right? How you could discover more yeah. just by allowing that process to break up you from just going directly to wanting to produce a product and rather allowing an exploration to take place. Mm -hmm. And so I, I really see printmaking as something that's very integrated, mm -hmm. um, a very integrated way of learning, a very integrated way of teaching. Um, and again, it's, it's, getting rid of that hierarchy as well a little bit because when you're in the printing studio you're all moving around the space it's also an art medium that forces you to move so you have to move from the water bath to applying your ink to the press to then mixing it on a different surface and so you're physically moving mm. and transferring your body throughout the space and you're transferring stuff from one surface onto another so for those of you who didn't know just a quick definition of printmaking is transference it's transferring something from one surface onto another. Um, and very often things get lost in translation within mm. that process. And that's the cool bit, mm. right? That's those like unplanned moments yeah. that I'm so, that I really feel should be applicable in any kind of education or any kind of learning space. Just quickly want to mention the movement that she was speaking about now in the space. I mean, something so simple that if we already had movement built into our classroom models, then students wouldn't have to go on guided walks now. So how do we think of learning as just this kind of static thing? You know, you have to sit still and learn. Yeah, and so I think like, like printmaking, as you explained it, because that was a very good lesson for me to learn about <laughs> what is printmaking, is like it's such a powerful also metaphor in in opposition to the panopticon like um and that idea of moving in between the spaces and i was thinking also as nicoline spoke now about i once um attended this talk about universal design and in the abstract um episode about play she also talks about how sinks are too high for children and how adults can always go lower but children can't go higher so by make just by making the sink a little bit lower by design, the power structure shifts. Mm. And um, it's the same when you see with, and this was on the university, even how its design is very able body orientated or how classrooms where what they saw when they put it in circular forms and how the BA building is a good example at Stellenbosch. They changed it. Um, at first it was just these kind of long rows and then they put all these these colorful cultures in circular form and now you are kind of forced when you are sitting there cramming for your test and someone is sitting next to you and it, it it's an opportunity to to talk and it's an opportunity to mix in between like you say moving from one platform to the next and um drawing on interdisciplinary work doesn't have to happen via correspondence like you can all be in the same room yes yeah. and i think with processed learning what becomes interesting, and I think you highlighted it earlier as well, that there's this comparative model that's written into our education system. So now if you have a process, but the end thing that's going to happen, you don't really know what the product's going to be, you can't then compare. So then people are not your competition. And I really, really struggle and feel very frustrated with this because our education system doesn't encourage 
collaboration within its compar comparative model. Because if you are constantly compared, and I mean, we in one of our classes in high school were actually ordered to sit in the order of our marks. So you walk into the classroom and you already know where you are ranked. And then the next term, the, the teacher would read out the who sits in what order again, and you had to stand outside oh. the class and she would filter us in. So now you move. So yeah. now you could see everyone's marks has dropped and everyone in the classroom becomes your competition because you just don't want to sit in the very front of the classroom because that's how she structured it. But the children that needed the mo oh, more no. attention sat in the front. So we have to really think about those kind of comparative systems and how then that translates into the work field. So many businesses have problems with their teams working together and collaborating. This is a universal problem we have. Where does it come from? It comes from competition. You know, yeah. If you are not taught from a very young age to collaborate and to engage with people and to give them the opportunity to speak and to understand that it's not my idea and my yeah. thing, you know, that I, my, 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 it's actually, you know what? It's just the process we're sharing. We're sharing the process of printmaking, but my print is never going to look the same as yours because of the in-between things that are allowed to happen. Another thing you can kind of take printmaking as an example of that is to take it even further is that printmaking is actually a very social process. So often they, they won't be one printmaker. There'll mm. be a printmaking almost like group where someone will design something or you'll get a design from someone else and you have to print it for them. Mm. And so it's a collaboration and often it's social because sometimes, for example, I made very large prints. Um, you need help. So you need someone to hold the paper down on the one end while you place it down on the other. And so then you're sharing your method and you're sharing your ideas. You're not hiding it and keeping it secret. And, and also with a print, if you, if you make a lino cut or an etching or anything like that, it's something you can produce again and again. So it also gets rid of that idea of this one magnificent genius artwork, right? It's something that you can produce multiples of um, and change each time or keep it the same or share and distribute out to other people. It's got this like distribution and social um, aspect to it, printmaking, mm. and, and that applies to exactly mm. what you were saying, Nicolene. So I think it's a really powerful tool to think about. And it's actually funny to think how ignorant it is to, to even come up with this idea that we we can come up with ideas on our own, that ideas and knowledge belongs to the individual. Because it, it literally doesn't work like that. We are, and we learn that when we learn that knowledge is more complex. Even the phrase knowledge is power, it's such an interesting thing to unpack because people think knowledge is power means the more facts you know, the more power you have, like you can navigate your knowledge by knowing more. But what it actually talks about is the fact that you get the power of engaging in a certain language game, a dominant discourse, where if you have knowledge, visual studies is a good example, like we learn the language of visual studies and now we have the knowledge to have these conversations with each other. But it's not knowledge of competition of who has the most power, it's the way that power operates by design through our knowledge systems and then we have the power to also change that. What it, one concept that is coming through in our discussion now is this idea of transparency, like how you're saying that if we collaborate, the idea is not hidden. And I think a really nice South African example of this is the Rorksdrift 
uh, Arts and Crafts Center. And I'm going to ask Olivia to introduce and tell us a little bit about this art center and how it can help us think of spaces that hold spaces for all contexts. It's kind of inviting spaces for everyone. Yeah, so just very briefly, um, Rockstrift Arts and Crafts Center was um, founded in, I think it was 1962, the early 1960s, um, by a Swedish couple um, who were given funds from um, a church in Sweden to come and sort of uplift communities um, in South Africa. And it's got an interesting history, the actual site of um, the center because a great battle took place there. Mm. And so it was an interesting site for them to choose because um, I remember writing about this in my um, research article for fourth year is that it's a site of both destruction. So the devastation of having a battle there and creation. Um, and so that's just an interesting sort of background, a little bit of extra knowledge for that. Um, but basically it was an art and craft center that um, brought kind of European art techniques such as printmaking or tapestry and tried to combine it um, with African arts, arts and crafts and create it almost as a model that could self-sustain so that they could sell the things that they wove, um, they could sell their pottery, they could sell their prints. And initially it was kind of started as a, a place to, for, for healing, which I think is an interesting thing to consider in this time. It was um, initially kind of a place where um, patients with TB could come and kind of work, use art as almost a therapy or a healing tool um, within this space. And that was kind of the initial idea through, through starting this kind of art center. Um, and, and just thinking about it as a, a model almost in opposition to schools and the panopticon and prisons and, and being surveyed the whole time. It was very much something where um, the students and the teachers were kind of equal. So something that they stressed, I mean, Cecil Scottness, um, a famous South African artist, he was one of the kind of teachers or founders of the center, very involved. He really spoke about it as a place where the, the European art did not try and the techniques that they were teaching did not try and dominate the African form of or the African form of art or craft that they were dealing with. It rather tried to combine the two. So it was very much about these um, European artists or, or people coming in and, and meeting people where they were, meeting African people where they were in their context and allowing their context to inform whatever creative pursuit they were wanting to um, go through or, or kind of explore or expand their knowledge on. And so it combined traditional African arts and crafts with, with things like printmaking. So if we take printmaking as an example, and it's, it's one of the art forms that emerged um, as a very successful art form from the school, the carvings are, of African masks and sculpture, the, those traditional ways of working translated so beautifully into the process of printmaking. Because I just want to say technically now, yes. here, when you're making a print like lino cut or etching or things like that, you are carving away at a ground before you then transfer it onto the print. That's just technically for the yes. carving. <laughs> it's I mean, it's printmaking is such a part of my life. I forget that there's some people that don't know what printmaking is. So hopefully if you come away with anything, you'll learn a bit about printmaking today. Um, but basically what I really found exciting about this way of working was that it was a particip participant kind of based. So you brought your knowledge and I brought my knowledge and we worked through it together. 
And that was also evident in the way that like the different art forms worked within the school. So for example, this, the school is quite, or the center is quite famous for its weaves and its weaving. And this was run almost entirely by women um, and, and headed Which up. Was absolutely revolutionary. No, completely. For that um, time. Exactly. And, and the, the, the Swedish woman who, who started this um, art center with her partner, her partner, um, he kind of took over the printmaking side and taught the men this printmaking skill and com and com in combination with um, their African carving, traditional kind of methods. And then she worked with the women and their weaves. And it was really interesting also to see that there was a large group of, of women, mostly in the center, especially to start with. And then the cross-pollination that started to happen, I was chatting to Nicoline about it, that um, the men would create a drawing or a print and then it would be interpreted as a tapestry or a weave. And so ideas were shared across between women and men and their different ways of working. Um, and, and, and then also with, with the new things that they were creating and the content that they were creating was very shared and very collaborative, which is really um, exciting for me about the school. Yeah, and I think the original idea of upliftment, this is now where my visual studies um, red lights are going on, and I feel like we need to just quickly decolonize that word or just star it, that this center actually, what, do you know the year? It was during apartheid, right? 1960s to 1970s. Yeah, so it is a, it's a very um, problematic time in South Africa. So to have a center that created a space not with even within the urban space for African artists, but within the rural yes. space for African artists yes. with a, a completely different idea of, of what we would today think of as upliftment or anything like that, which can be a very problematic word. It, and also in the way that they worked, um, it ended up being more like you say, cross-pollination where yeah. the Swedish artists and the African artists were influenced by each other. So it wasn't like the Swedish artist was like, this is our medium and now we're going to show you how to do it. It was more like, we're going to teach you the process, but then their art were also influenced by the African artists because they gathered inspiration from being in the context and from engaging with the artists. So it, it was a very fluid way of, yes. of engaging with a community that really needed a space. And, and in that, what's interesting to me is how the teachers become, like we said earlier, space holders for growth and for curiosity and for natural development and not really people that enforce. And then the students become teachers and the yes. teachers become students. At Rock's Drift, they had this transparent model and Liv, when we were preparing, told me about this, that the, the students were always taught with the idea that they were going to take over and in the end did the art center so that they could then become the teachers. So you're not teaching the person just how to print. You're t also teaching them how to run the studio, where to find the supplies, all of those kind of thinking. And if you think of how we teach today, there isn't really this transparency to how things work. I mean, even in the academic model at university, some of the things that it lacks is the practicality of actually taking your skill out into the world and then applying it in the world. So how are we thinking about the way we share knowledge as that the students can also become teachers? Like you said, with that red flag of the word uplifting, and it's interesting, it's refreshing to hear that because knowledge is often so almost paternalistic, like we said in the beginning, like I am the one who controls the knowledge and then it reestablishes power relationships, especially if you think about like the colonial history of, of who, was, who was teaching who and who is this kind of haves and the haves nots. And I think it's it's a really interesting example of history to, to learn about. I'm also learning about it now 
as how even through that cross-pollination, like you say, it's once again that movement in the room where um, collaboration can come and this unequal dis distribution of dominant discourses are kind of dismantled. Something quite important in the discussion we had earlier about comparing the virtual space to the physical space is that in South Africa, schools are havens of safety in a lot of communities. And the teachers have a different role than just being a teacher. They may be the only responsible person in the, the, the child's life, or maybe the child comes from a, a very violent area and the school is a place where there's a sense of peace and a sense of safety and a sense of quiet. So there's also these kind of complicated things we need to weigh up um, in our conversation about the virtual and the physical space. And another thing that's maybe interesting is to talk about access, like you said earlier, like how um, now through virtual spaces, the more teachers with maybe better qualified or, or those kind of resources can be shared into spaces where they weren't in the past. But then also if we go virtual, what happens to those safe havens? I think just to reflect on that and bring it back to the current situation that I'm dealing with very much now is that um, the teacher's role has, has shifted. And so now these times are even more uncertain. There's a lot more... Um, kind of anxiety around school and learning and trying to get things done and matrix trying to you know kind of finish their year salvage their year um and the teacher's role i feel has shifted and and rightly so i mean i feel it should be already here but shifted to this role of as you said at the beginning holding the space but holding the space with with kindness and and with warmth and with with um kind of an understanding and, and meeting children where they're at. Mm. And so this kindness is something that I don't see now when I'm going to school because they have to be so rigid about everything because they want to, you know, not contaminate anyone and, and, and not spread this virus. And there's very little kindness in the harshness of that mm. system. Whereas if we stay virtual, there's maybe more capacity to be kind and to hold space. Um, and that space is now no longer in the classroom, but it's in the way that you as an individual teacher choose to interact. Um, and, and, and your kindness then becomes that space that, that they can be and learn and, and not just learn schoolwork, learn more than that, learn how to cope with a situation like this, learn how to verbalize thoughts about a, a situation like this, um, how to translate that into, um, creative thinking and problem solving mm -hmm. um and so yeah just reflecting on that and, and the kindness that i know i need to have with me now um as i'm going back into the teaching space so it seems there's almost this challenge of now it doesn't have to be either or with the virtual space or the physical space as either the panopticon or the alternative the alternative of compassion but rather it's like how can we find a way to bring what we've learned now with for instance the power and the design of zoom and how that shifted it for you and bring that into the physical space and vice versa and i think what my takeaway definitely from this conversation is that power is there power is everywhere and it's in design but it can be either or productive but it can be either productive or it can be oppressive um, and i guess in some cases also both but it's about this choice and where we've 
kind of contrasted these two examples of on the one hand, the playful and the compassionate side, um, and how that can be maybe ways of using power more productively. I suppose I can just add to the idea of, of what a teacher's role is now. And, and this is something that I've always had in the back of my mind um, when I'm teaching is that it's not what you're teaching because now the content we know for ages has been available online. Kids go for extra mass lessons, extra classes. There's so many online resources, even before this pandemic, right? It's not what you're teaching, but rather how. So how are you presenting the information to children in a way that makes them take the initiative, internalize what they're learning, take responsibility for their own learning, enjoy what they're learning and allow space for them to make mistakes and play a little bit. Um, so your role as a teacher is, is so much on how, how, how are you holding the space? How are you creating the space? How are you presenting that information to them and not what is the information? I feel like the what is less important than the how right definitely, now. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Olivia, would you mind just sharing your social links with us? Where can people find you? Is there anything you'd like to plug or anything you want them to follow in terms of what you're doing right now? Um, you can find me as an artist on Instagram. Um, my handle is Olivia Bevan Art. No fancy things, just um, all the letters one after the other. And um, it'll really help if you can follow me there because lockdown has given me a really nice opportunity to kind of tap back into making space for my own art and things. And then Nicoline and I, we have um, guided art sessions where we teach online classes um, on Zoom. Um, they're really fun. They're really cool. We really enjoy doing them. And that's um, something she has mentioned before, but create space art sessions. Um, please give us a follow as well. Yeah, and that is create space art sessions, all with underscores between the words. It's a long name. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Olivia, for joining us today um, and chatting with us through this whole difficult problem of education and how we can rethink it. It's such a pleasure. Okay, so as we reflect on this episode, um, it was so nice to just have Olivia here to bring to bring her lens and to give us some insight into the education system. Um, we just want to reflect on a few last points to, to bring this conversation home. Yeah, so I think something that really stuck with me was just to reiterate how, if you think about, if we reflect on design and power and structures in the South African context that we have so many problems already with structural and systemic um, power relations caused by design. So if we think about the roads and neighborhoods and how that's all still like kind of stemming from the apartheid. Yes. Um, mm. So the forceful removals that happened and the, the type of housing acts that took place. So that's why it's so important to reimagine the role that design plays in, in education. So we use the example of the Panopticon and the, the Rorksdrift School as a type of an extreme contrast, but it also helps us to, to expose the importance of these power dynamics 
Yes, Jana, I completely agree with you. So if you think, for example, about the extreme cases of this kind of playful design that we spoke about in the podcast, um, they reflect a lot of color and there's a lot of natural light and those kind of things that we say. And, and they've changed parts of the building to be more curved. And so if you think of South Africa, it might not be able to, we might not be able to change our, all of our buildings like that all of a sudden. And that's by no means what we're suggesting. We're just saying that with the resources that we have, there are some design issues that we can consider and we should constantly question how we can make these spaces more open, more accessible and equal that kind of hierarchy that is already set, like you say, up in our society by all of these different spaces that bar entry and that make it difficult for people to access an equal space for, of learning in any case. And those are the only the kind of things that we can start understanding and start taking into account if we ask these questions. Okay, so thank you very much for joining us again today for another interesting discussion. At the end of this podcast, I just feel like it's necessary to again highlight that Jana and myself, we're not experts in any of the fields and in any of the theorists we discuss. We are practitioners and we do research, but we do research in a very intuitive way for these conversations. And they serve the purpose not to instruct but to just stimulate um, your thinking and, and also it's also a way of us just sharing our ideas and where we are right now. Yeah, and so with that in mind, we really want to encourage you, like if there's something that you found maybe even problematic or interesting or you want to maybe um, expand on something, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, the details will follow shortly in our outro, but just reach out and share your insights. Send us an email if you want to collaborate or if you have something that you want us maybe to air out a little bit further. Just a few more things before we sign off. We are so grateful that you listened to the public airing of our thoughts. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please do so. Rate and review us if you enjoy our content. This way you help us by making it easier for other listeners to find us. As always, we would love to hear what you think about the concepts, theories, texts and practices discussed in this podcast. So please reach out to us either through Instagram at Eret underscore podcast, through our Eret podcast Facebook page or via email at eretpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find all these links in the show notes below. If you would like to get a short email from us sharing resources, related content and any other fun stuff that we don't share in the podcast, please go to our website at nbcollective.space forward slash air hyphen it and subscribe. If you are interested in supporting this project, you can also do so at nbcollective.space forward slash air hyphen it. And remember... Just like laundry, sometimes putting those stuffy ideas out in the air can help freshen them out. Until next time, stay stimulated. stimulated.